0: So, this is God's Word. Revelation 2, 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like the blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your servants' service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways." until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word to us tonight. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, verses 18 and following to the church in Thyatira. And uh, as we turn that up, let, let, let me paint a picture, a, a scenario that just might have happened, something like it might have happened back in Thyatira around 92 AD, the time that this letter we think was written. Let's imagine Peter, a tradesman in Thyatira. He makes his living by a dyeing fabric with a special dye that Thyatira is famous for, purple dye. And his friend Stephen, who also also happens to work in the dye industry, calls by. They're both involved in a small church. It meets in a local home in Thyatira And they're both involved in the guild of dye workers. It functions as a sort of union for the people in their line of business. Hi, Peter, Stephen says, are you coming along to the guild meeting tonight? Oh, is that tonight? Peter says, "Ah, I think I'll, uh, I'll give it a miss. Oh, but you've got to come, Stephen says. They're making that decision on the new pricing structure for a purple cloth. Uh, you really can't afford not to be there. You need to be in when, when these decisions are being made. Well, Peter said, to tell you the truth, I've been feeling that I really should start to give these guild meetings a miss because of where they are. You, you, you mean, Stephen said, because it's in Diana's temple, but, but we know there's no such God as Diana. Yes... Peter said, but, but when we take the meat that has been offered to her, it, it looks like we're worshiping her. Uh, and, and you know what happened last time? Everybody got really drunk, and then those temple prostitutes did that dance, and, and I left soon after that, but I've heard the stories. I feel really bad about it. I, I can't help thinking that Christians shouldn't really be in that situation. Oh, don't be so narrow. Stephen said. Uh, Why don't you remember just the other day at church how how Jezebel was saying that it is the spirit that matters and not the body? As long as we're worshiping Jesus in our hearts, then, then what we do with our bodies really isn't all that important. And besides, if you're not there to be part of that new pricing structure, you know you might as well give up. There's no future for somebody who's not in the guild. Well, maybe. Something like that happened in Thyatira, but it's the sort of pressures that the Christians there were under. As we've looked at these early chapters of Revelation, we've seen that, that these seven letters are revealed to John on the Isle of Patmos. They come directly from Jesus, and they are His evaluation and His particular word to these seven churches that are now in in Western Turkey. They are a, a record of, in a sense, what Christ thinks of them at this point in their history, but they're also representative. They are seven representative churches, seven being that number that speaks to us in Revelation, especially of entirety. So they are pictures of the entire church at every place and every age. And so the issues they face are the issues that we face or can face. And so we can learn from the warnings and the encouragements that they are given. And we have seen, I hope, that they speak of what the church is to strive after and what it is to avoid. Ephesus was a a busy Orthodox church that loved the truth but didn't seem to love each other. Smyrna receives only Praise for the fact that they're prepared to suffer for Jesus, even whenever it's really, really tough. The church in Pergamum stood against the pressure of persecution, but had compromised on the truth and allowed false teaching to, to uh, grow up amongst them. And tonight, we come to Thyatira. It's the next stage on the circular route that our postman would take as he goes round delivering these uh, letters, or indeed, I think what probably happened was reading the entire letter of Revelation with each section that was relevant to the Uh, various churches. And Thyatira is 40 miles southeast of Pergamon, and it wasn't a particularly important city from a civil point of view. It wasn't a great uh, administrative center or political power or anything like that. It was a major manufacturing and trading center. And one of the things that it was famous for was the fact that they produced this uh, purple dye from a, a local root of a plant it was a very hard color to make uh, purple in those days, and so it was exported far and wide. and was very valuable. You remember uh, Acts 16 tells us about the conversion of Lydia. She was from Thyatira, and she was a dealer in purple. Purple cloth, probably. And, and uh, she was a sort of, perhaps, an overseas sales manager for one of the companies that was based in her town, and it might have been even that, that she became a Christian there in, in Philippi and perhaps took the gospel back to her family. That's maybe part of how uh, the church grew. But unlike some of the other churches that we've mentioned here in Philippa, in, in uh, Revelation, there, there doesn't seem to be a big problem with Caesar worship, with, with state worship here. That doesn't seem to be uh, the issue. The problem seems to be the fact that it's that imaginary scenario that we mentioned with Peter and Stephen. Uh, all the trades, you see, all the manufacturing was tied up with the, the various guilds, and there were guilds for bakers and tanners and, and coppersmiths and all the different activities that you could imagine, and that was fine. There were sort of unions that represented their rights and so on. But the problem was they held their meetings in the public spaces, and the public spaces were temples, temples to all the various pagan gods. And in those temples, there were meals served, and the food would have been offered to idols. And often there was then an immoral aspect to what went on around the temples because uh, prostitution was sort of tied to the temples. And all of this then put Christians in a terribly difficult position. And the pressure was upon them, not so much targeting their, their lives, but their livelihoods. It was, it was a financial thing. It was survival for them. And in some ways, that can be a real pressure. I remember uh, some of you have been to, to Malawi. I remember uh, one of the Malawian uh, church leaders, a uh, missionary folk there, telling us, that if you were part of a a local Malawian family and and you had small children, uh, uh, the only route out of, of poverty was education. And school fees are incredibly expensive. But the local mosque offers education for free. What do you do as you watch your children suffer? Well, that was the type of situation that the, the Christians in Thyatira found themselves in, challenging their, their livelihoods. And, and, and this is a church that in the midst of all of these things, there's lots of good things going on. There are encouragements. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're doing more now than you did at first. So, you can imagine their annual report said that there were increases right across the board. All the figures were up. More activities, more program, more staff. And people noticed. They, they, they used to say, do you remember what this place was like a few years ago? Oh, it's so much better now. It feels so much more alive. And those things were real. Jesus commends them for for genuine progress here. But what we must see is that just because there was genuine growth doesn't mean at the same time there can't be serious problems. We've got to see that. We're going to see that, that Satan's at work within this church. That's what it tells us. And the encouragements that they had can easily mask that. It's a little lesson for us, isn't it? just because we can look at some parts of our lives or some parts of our church life together and see that there are things to give thanks for and encouragements that are real and genuine, doesn't mean that the old devil is not at work to try and tear us down, tear us apart. Because he always is. He always is. So so what's the problem then in in Thyatira? Well, look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So the, the problem was this particular woman who was in this prophetic role, teaching role within uh, the church, she's almost certainly not called Jezebel. Jezebel's a, a, a nickname that, that refers to the infamous wife of King Ahab in 1 Kings who encouraged people to worship Baal and tried to have Elijah killed, I've done Many, many, many baptisms, and I've never yet baptized a Jezebel. And I really hope I never do. Do you know, um, <clears throat> do you know my, my uh, uh, sister-in-law and her husband uh, had a dog, and they called this dog Jezebel. And uh, it was a really mad uh, collie. And they had it in Bangor and and it used to run away. And so they would have regularly been seen in the middle of Ward Park in Bangor at the top of their voices shouting, Jezebel, you know, and and, uh, people did give them great uh, looks. But but don't ever name any of your children Jezebel. Uh, But you can see why it was an appropriate sort of nickname for this uh, prophetess, because it says, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So the context was probably, as far as we can tell, those sorts of trade guilds that we were mentioning before. And she probably said something like this. You have heard, you have heard that that we're supposed to stay away from such things. But you know what? That's a shallow interpretation of things. That was okay as the church was getting established. But God has revealed to me a deeper path and that is that, that actually Christianity is about the transformation of the soul. Body doesn't really matter. Body's gonna be wasting away after all. And so you know what? You can go into a setting like Diana's Temple, and you can take part in all that's going on, and you can be absolutely unaffected in here, pure in heart. The bit that God's really interested in. You you can do that. You're free. And you can imagine then how attractive that teaching was when it just so happened, it aligned with the particular values of the culture, the cultural expectation of the day. It allowed you to fit in. It removed the cost to your faith There was no longer any financial penalty to following Jesus. There was no loss of any opportunity. There was no drawing of lines. There was no awkward conversations with your neighbor. We don't do that. But you see, this edgy, attractive message was not from God. You notice it says, she calls herself a prophetess. So Jesus is saying... She is not speaking on my behalf. It's not my word. It may also be a reference to her setting herself up as a prophetess. She was perhaps not recognized by the church. Presumably, there weren't tremendously detailed structures as to how that would be done in those days. She'd just become a sort of self-styled guru. It's one of the reasons that that, that many churches go to serious lengths now to recognize those who have an ongoing teaching ministry within the church. And Jesus says that this deep message, these deep secrets are actually the deep secrets of Satan. He has a foothold in this busy, growing church through this teaching that is leading God's people into immorality. Now, you notice who, who Jesus' teaching, who, who Jesus' rebuke is directed at. He is going to deal with Jezebel in a moment or whatever her name was, but, but it's also directed against the church at large. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jesus criticizes, her for their, Jesus criticizes them for their toleration. Toleration, prize today. It's one of the great virtues. Everybody wants to be known as tolerant. Modern tolerant society is not what we're told that we're supposed to be a part of. But often, toleration is code today for no one ever saying that anybody is wrong. Because, you see, society has jettisoned the idea of any external authority, and therefore it has jettisoned the idea of ever being able to say that anything is objectively wrong. But Jesus here clearly thinks there are some things that are wrong. we just got to get that into our heads, folks. Jesus says there are some things that are wrong. They're sinful. Some things that we must not, therefore, be intolerant of because there are some things that He is intolerant of. And one of those things is teaching and thinking that leads God's people into immorality, teaching that, that, that leads God's people to say, what he has said is wrong is actually okay. Now, you can see that there's a very clear application here today to to what's happening in the wider Christian church. I must say, I misread what was going to happen with the whole moral revolution. I, I really did think it would be a case of the, at least the sort of broadly evangelical church saying, well, we know what the Bible says on this, and then others, the sort of, uh, maybe the way out there, folks saying, well, you know, maybe it's okay, but it's not been like that, has it? There are those who, who use all the same words that we use. They, they, they use the label evangelical, and, and, and they say, well, do you know, there's a particular way of reading the Bible and, and and uh, various churchmen are saying this, and celebrity Christians are saying, you, you, you know, do you know what? It, 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 Paul wasn't really speaking about consensual gay relationships, for example. He, he, was, he was really talking about abusive, abusive relationships. And, and where there's love after all, isn't God all about? Isn't He all about love? Doesn't love win? And it's leading God's people, you see, to say what God says is not okay. It's leading God's people to say it's okay. And one of the positions that you're going to hear, that you probably do already hear, is is to say, well, you know, this is just a matter of interpretation. Can't you respect my viewpoint on this? Can't we have a range of views within the church on this issue? Can't we celebrate our diversity? Can't you just imagine Jezebel saying that? Oh, oh, you know, you may take that view. It's a, it's a little old-fashioned. But, but, but I take this more modern, progressive view. Isn't there room for all of us within the church in Thyatira? Isn't it good to, to not all think the same thing? Many at Thyatira thought so. They tolerated her and her followers. But Jesus said, I have this against you you're tolerating what I have declared to be intolerable. And you see, that's the question, isn't it? Jesus tells us, He says to us what we are to love and what we are to hate. And if He has spoken on an issue, then then we must not tolerate the teaching of those who go against that you see, this church was, was a mirror of Ephesus. Ephesus was, was all about holding on to the truth, and, 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 and yet they'd forgotten the love. Thyatira was all about love, lovely place to be. You walked in, you felt incredibly welcomed. But they fudged the truth. And how we need grace to be those who are full of grace and full of truth. Jesus was like that, is like that. No flipping between them from time to time. One day you got him on a grace day. One day you got him on a truth day. He was a little tougher that day. Not like that. Full of grace, full of truth. We need help to be like that. Each of us is going to naturally tend towards one or the other. Probably in our society, the way that we've grown up, the, the messages that we've been soaking up for all these years, we're probably going to to lean more towards grace, because truth is unacceptable in some quarters. And so many churches are going to lean that way too. Well, how does Jesus deal with this woman? Well, quite remarkably, actually, you'll see that he's already been dealing with her and he's given her time to repent. Verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now, that shows an incredible, surely, an incredible graciousness and patience on the part of Jesus. She's damaging the very people for whom he bled, and yet he shows her mercy with a view to her turning around. You can discuss over a couple of tea later on, do you think Jezebel is a Christian? I'm not really sure that we can come to an absolute conclusion on that, but but the way that he deals with her here might be an argument for saying that she was. But the patience that he has is not limitless. She is damaging his church, and he is about to take action. Verse 22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. So a serious judgment is about to befall this woman and her followers. Her her followers are described as those who are spiritual adulterers. There's figurative language here, and also her children. I think that's a a reference to her followers. So, this is probably, however, a a literal sickness and death, as in the church at Corinth, whenever they abused the Lord's Supper. But whatever it is, you notice that the other churches that look on are going to be in no doubt that God has been at work here. Then all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. What would it be like to be in one of the other churches, in one of the neighboring churches, and to be aware that, 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 that God Himself, that Jesus Himself had stepped into this body of believers just up the road— And he had taken drastic action against a false teacher and her followers in such a way that no one has any doubt that he had done it. Boy, wouldn't you think Jesus is not to be messed with? You notice how he introduces himself in verse 18? He is the one whose feet are like burnished bronze, feet suitable for trampling all opposition, for trampling His enemies, for meeting out judgment. And here it's within His church that some people are feeling the pressure of His feet. Now, you see, all of this is to say that, that the Lord Jesus Christ takes false teaching, and the corresponding immorality that came from it here, very seriously. Thyatira is the smallest of the towns, but this is the longest section for any of the churches, the longest of the individual letters. And also many of the scholars point out that these seven letters have got this what they call a chiastic structure, a sort of a cross shape, so that the the, the number one and seven sort of match or contrast each other, and then two and six and and three and four or three and five, so that number four is at the center and is teaching us something really, really important. So the whole the whole structure of Revelation is saying, take notice of this, the purity of how we believe of what we believe and then how we live is really, really important. It's not a little thing. I have wondered, how might Satan attack the work of the church here, here in Hill Street? We prayed about that recently within one of the prayer meetings. How might that be? We know that the methods that he uses are usually the ones that he has spent hundreds of years perfecting. External pressure, internal disunity, false teaching, and immorality. The Bible says we're not to be unaware of his schemes. And yet I hear all too often of these things bubbling up within congregations all over the place. And surely here's a letter that would warn us about the possible threat of immorality, of a spirit that says our purity is of a, a little thing, a purity is a little thing compared to, to, to loving Jesus with our heart. So long as we're doing that, oh, let's not be too legalistic. And yet surely this letter would warn us that that's a danger for any church. The Bible, in order to protect us of this warns us again and again in these areas it says that we're to pursue the highest standards of purity with one another that we're to avoid using for example coarse language and joking because once that becomes acceptable then the next step and the next step and the next step just become almost inevitable it tells us to treat as it says older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity it says the marriage bed is to be kept pure it tells us to flee from sexual immorality Shouldn't we, therefore, give ourselves to the highest standards in these things? Something else that's really important here. You see, verse 22, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. So, so you see, Jesus describes the actions of these people, the sins they commit, and he introduces himself as the one who has eyes like blazing fire, as if to say, I see it all, I know what's going on, he says. But then notice what he says in verse 23: not then all the churches will know that I am he who sees everything. No. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. In other words, Jesus is the one who sees the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He knows where this stuff starts. He knows that before a believer in Thyatira practiced immorality, they considered immorality and imagined immorality. He searches hearts and minds. So it's as if this is saying, your neighbors, your church neighbors, will see the catastrophe that takes place amongst these people so that they will not even step foot down that road in their heads. What a warning there is in the center of these letters. There's also promise, we're going to finish with this, because as with all the letters, they end in a way that is relevant for the situation that they face. You see, verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to our teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, so clearly, you see, not, not all of those in Thyatira have been sucked in by this woman's false teaching and practice. And, and those faithful people are, are not to lose ground, but they're to hold on to what they have. And, and isn't that great? If you're faithful, what's it saying? Just keep going. It's not complicated. I'm not going to impose any other burden on you. That's a reference back to Acts where they had the council with the Gentiles, Gentile Christians. If you're faithful, nothing else to do. Just keep at it. Don't give up. Don't lose what you have. That implies you've got a lot to lose, doesn't it, if you're faithful? Faithfulness gives you a lot to lose, earns you a lot of ground. And what might keep us going in this long faithfulness is to think what the Lord has in store for us. You see, here we are plodding away, plodding away in Tharatara, bearing the cost of being on the outside of the culture, not having everything go our way, the awkwardness of saying, Look, I really can't do that. But one day, it's not just that we will rest or even be rewarded. It's that we will rule. Those who overcome get to rule with Jesus. I don't know what that looks like. Sounds great, though. We won't be on the margins then. And and do you see, this is ruling with an iron scepter, dashing them to pieces like pottery. This is what the father says to the son in Psalm 2. You might want to have a look at it sometime. He says to his son, you're going to rule like this. And Jesus says to those who overcome, you're going to rule with me. Does that help? You notice that he says too, they're going to be given the morning star. We, we know the morning stars, perhaps a name for the planet Venus, but but here it's a reference to Jesus Himself. Jesus is described as the morning star in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. In other words, you're gonna those who overcome, you're gonna get me. You see, whenever we're tempted, whenever we're tempted to pursue something other than Jesus, it it's it's a false promise, isn't it? It's a false reward. What we're really after is Jesus. And the and thing is, you see, if we go his way, we're going to get him. You see, the world says to us, it says to you and says to me, it's been whispering to you this week, and it will. It says compromise here because this is best. Value. Value your comfort. Va- value, value what you your. your Your peers think of you. Comfort is best. But actually, Jesus says, Come my way and you'll get me. And you can't have both. You you can't run down that road, that road of compromise, and think that I'll be there. I'm not, I'm over here. So come my way and you'll get me and I'm best. Is that where we're headed? Let's pray. Lord, there's something very uncomfortable about you being the one who searches hearts and minds. For we know that you know all about us. You know the double-mindedness and the desire for comfort and the desire to indulge ourselves and the desire to, to keep our heads down. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for that faithfulness that keeps on going, the faithfulness that you will reward because we want you more than anything. Make it so, Lord, in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.